Hi, my name is Dan and I'm an alcoholic. You guys in the back, can you hear me okay? Okay, raise your hand if I start stepping away and getting very quiet. Uh, pleasure to be in Ocean Shores at the Jamboree. What an event. I want to thank the committee. I want to thank uh, Dory for asking me to be here, for Midge for handling all the money, uh, the purse strings, all the volunteers. Uh, it's been a, a terrific event. And then I've been joined by this group of speakers I'm totally intimidated by. Um, Kathy, uh, Rosie, uh, Kenny, Magdalena, amazing. And tomorrow we'll find out about Larry. I, I hear he's good. <laughs> and so I'm looking forward to that. Um, and and it, it is a privilege and honor to be asked to speak at a medium of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was suggested to me early on in my recovery, Dan, when asked to do something in Alcoholics Anonymous, say yes. So Dan, will you pour coffee? Yes. Dan, will you clean ashtrays? Yes, and, and yes, we used to smoke like trains back in the day. D Dan, will you secretary meeting? Yes. Will you speak at a meeting? Yes. Will you be uh, a GSR? Will you be a treasurer? I said, yes, yes, yes. And that suggestion to say yes and a hundred other suggestions just like it have helped me stay sober since November 14th, 1994, which is 26 years of sobriety without weekends or holidays off. But it also, if you caught it, November 14th is actually tomorrow. So, so I need you all to sit on me for four and a half hours, <laughs> just, just in case. Um, I did say I'm Dan. I'm an alcoholic. To be more specific, my name is Daniel. It's uh, Daniel Timothy, Daniel Timothy O'Grady. <laughs> Any clues? Um, a male, Irish, de facto Catholic, and I'm at an AA meeting. Is that all? kind of fit together. I was, I was either going to be an alcoholic or a priest, or an alcoholic priest, I guess. And, and it's not what I aspire to be. I can remember in elementary school, the teacher asked, what do you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And uh, I remember saying I wanted to be a pilot or, or Tarzan. I was going through a Tarzan phase <laughs> at, as a kid. But I didn't say I wanted to be an alcoholic, a drug addict, afflicted with this horrible disease, disorder, or disability. Uh, and yet, that's exactly, I was, I was born to it. Uh, my birth certificate should have had a meeting schedule stapled to it. <laughs> should have gone straight to an AA meeting. Um, and, and so I, I played with this disease, gave it a test drive for a couple of decades, and burnt my life to the ground more than one time. And it took what it took for me to get to these rooms. Problem I had, and I had been introduced, if you will, to 12-step uh, programs and treatment programs um, before I finally got sober and, and stayed sober. The problem I had is that I had some firmware that was downloaded into this brain at a very early age that um, prevented me from accepting my condition. So I'm, I'm one of three boys. I'm the middle son uh, of a man, our father, um, who was one of three sons, and his father. So Grandpa was a Minneapolis firefighter. My dad was a full bird colonel. And, and all these males, it just cascaded down. It was a, a legacy of male macho schmuckism. <laughs> and and that's, that's what we were taught. Uh, my dad taught his sons, you don't, you don't quit, right? You, you don't give up. You don't show weakness. You don't cry. You don't say I love you, you don't hug. 
and that's what's running around in my head. So when you all came at me and said, and it wasn't just you, right? So counselors and employers and significant others said, you know, you've got to accept this. You have to surrender. I said, I can't. I can't. The colonel says, no, don't show weakness. And that mindset almost killed me and almost killed those around me as a result, right? Um, Dad was a big fan back in the day of uh, John Wayne. So anytime a new John Wayne movie came out, he took his boys to go see it. First day, Sons of Katie Elder and True Grit and all that nonsense because the, the mindset was, what would John Wayne do? What would John Wayne do? That's what we were taught. Um, he doesn't hug. He didn't say, I love you. He doesn't turn it over, let it go. He doesn't do that nonsense. John Wayne is, is a man. And, and that was plugged in my head. I, I got to see it up close as well. Uh, wherever there was something going on in the world, that's where we were. So when NATO was getting established, I was born in Spain. So we were in Europe. Cold War, we were in Alaska, making sure the Russians didn't come aboard. Vietnam War, we're in the Philippines, 70 miles off the coast of Vietnam, and my dad is going in and out of Vietnam while that's going on, and at our house, the barbecues and the picnics that took place at our house, um, all of dad's friends came over and they were, they were fighter pilots. And these guys were way cool, and I looked up to them. I mean, they smoked Marlboros, they drank Budweiser's, they talked dirty, they were fearless, it was awesome. And my dad was one of them. So that's the role model I had to uh, emulate. Uh, I can remember, um, being in the Philippines, he took uh, a trip over to Thailand and custom ordered a bar. It was this big, huge, beautiful monkey pod bar with uh, brass rails and leather seats, the whole thing. And, and when we actually moved to Hawaii, in our house in Hawaii, the family room was the centerpiece for this bar. And it was huge. You had to walk around it to get anywhere in the house. And that bar was fully stocked. He had the wine rack in there. Uh, every kind of alcohol you could think of was in that bar. And up behind the bar, he had a plaque, a gold plaque. And engraved in that plaque, it said, an Irishman is never drunk as long as he can hold on to one blade of grass and not fall off the face of the earth. <laughs> That's how we roll. So alcohol was in our house. It, uh, it was always in our house. The... Uh, the messages we got, mom would say, um, don't talk to your father after work until he's had his martini. So here's a guy, he, he can't talk to his kids until he drinks. And it really wasn't a martini, it was vodka on the rocks. They had wine with dinner, they had the after dinner drinks, the whole thing. Um, and I've always struggled with that. Uh, you know, were my parents alcoholics? I have no idea. But <laughs> they didn't have the unmanageability that was going on. They had, it, they had their game going on. Uh, unfortunately, I had the ism right from the, the jump start, and so I was the juvenile delinquent of the three boys. I was the black sheep. I got in trouble. It was uh, all the typical adolescent kind of nonsense, but there were some uh, acute moments. Um, I got kicked out of the Boy Scouts. Not a badge of honor, really, but we were on a camping trip up in the mountains. Uh, we retired at night, got into the tent, and in the tent we were doing things we shouldn't have been doing, and the Boy Scout master, Scout master busted us. And he kind of overreacted because he called the police. We're in the mountains. Come on, man. Called the police, and then the police overreacted. They called all of our parents to drive up in the mountains in the middle of the night to take us home, and we were excommunicated or whatever from the Boy Scouts because of that. 
So mom and dad were starting to get some insight as to who their son was. One of the boys in that uh, tent that night was my high school principal's son. And so she got called up in the middle of the night and saw me with her son. And so now I'm on her radar. In fact, because of some shenanigans on campus, she asked my father that I not return to school. So I'm, I'm now expelled from high school. Kicked out of the Boy Scouts High School. Minor bumps in the road. I dug a trench in the front yard and declared war against the colonel. It, it's what I did. And, and so there were consequences for that. Um, it got hit probably deserved it, uh, stabbed with forks, probably deserved it. Here's what happened with the colonel, though, is that he found that he had a son that was spinning out of control, and he wasn't able to manage that. Wasn't able to manage that. So it got to a point where, because I can't go to high school now, he, he decided, uh, I'm going to give you two choices. Um, one is a lockdown boys' home, or the other is uh, the military. And at my age, I was 16, about to turn 17. Vietnam War is just coming to an end. He gave me the choice of the Marine Corps or Navy. And I said, dude, Navy, I'm out. It's not just a job, it's an adventure. <laughs> so the day I turned 17, I'm enlisted in the uh, US, US Navy and, and served four years. Any other veterans here, Veterans Day, raise your hand. Thank you for your service. Navy. It, it, it did make me a man that was drunk a lot. So, was, <laughs> yeah. I can remember at the airport, as I was getting ready to fly to, to boot camp, uh, dad was at the airport and uh, came up to me, shook, shook my hand, no hugs, none of that nonsense. And he said, remember, son, Navy is a four-letter word, and he turned on his heels and walked away because Air Force was not appreciating the Navy uh, enlistment. Uh, I was glad to be done with the colonel. I'm done with him didn't like them, I'm out. And what happens in the Navy at 17, they consider you government issue, you're an adult, full grown. And on base, you can drink legally. And the Enlisted Man's Club became Nirvana. It was awesome. And we would be there constantly drinking. And Friday and Saturday night, there were dances. And um, it was disco. It was the disco era. And I was all about it. I was. I was all in. So I had the silk shirt. I had the gold chains. I had, I had it going on. Uh, dance, dance with the girls. But I also like, because back in those days, we were drinking fruity drinks, right? So it was fruity stuff, tequila sunrise, um, Harvey Wallbanger, slow gin. There was one drink. Um, I don't know if you ever had it. It's called a slow, comfortable screw up against the wall. You ever had that? Tasted like crap. <laughs> But I loved the look on the bartender's face when I ordered it. <laughs> Can I please have? Yeah. I, I met a girl there uh, much older than me, 14 years older than me. So I'm, I'm a teen. I'm a baby, and she's 14 years. But she can dance. My disco queen, she had a trans am, and she was a cosmetologist, so she had money. So I was in love, I think. Um, Got in trouble in the Navy, missed watches, had to go to non-judicial punishment, uh, got in trouble a few times, got out with an honorable discharge, and, and got launched into uh, the Silicon Valley of the 1980s. And it was just heating up right then. Uh, it was very exciting. So I, I married my disco queen. The, 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 anybody else number their spouses? I have one, two, three, no, maybe just me. So this is number one. Um, 
and, and I go to college for, in computer science and start working in Silicon Valley, and in the 80s is when uh, powdered Budweiser started to explode down there. So I got in trouble. Um, and, and here's the deal with me is that um, Budweiser in a can, Budweiser in a bottle, Budweiser in a bag, I didn't care. I needed to change the condition of being Dan O'Grady. So I, I'm a humid garbage can. I would put anything. I can remember Robitussin and Actifed, anything that would give me a buzz of some kind. But alcohol was my mainstay. In fact, I've got this back in those days. See, I'm dating myself. Uh, Dynasty, Dallas, remember those shows? JR. It's the middle of the day. JR's in Dallas, 20-story high business, and he's got his office. He's got a credenza, crystal decanter with this nice brown liquid in it, big crystal tumblers. And homeboy at noon is turning around, hitting that. I said, I need one of those. And I got one. I got the crystal tumbler, Jack Daniels, the decanter, the, the and it's right in my living room by the front door. And every time I went in and out, I took a hit off that thing. I, I romanticized alcohol. The, the big book likes to refer to uh, the doctor's opinion. He says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I love the effect. Looking back, it was the great love affair of my life. I had a passion about it. Loved the ceremony, the smell, the sound of the ice in the glass. I loved everything about it. Problem is, I started running into a few uh, difficulties. It's, I guess, badge of honors, driving under the influence, public intoxication, assault and battery on bouncer. That last one's out of the ordinary. See, I've, I've gotten in a lot of fights. I swear to God, I've never won a fight in my entire life. It's the stupidest thing I ever did. Never won a fight. The DUI was one where the highway patrol pulled me over coming out of happy hour, and I was blotto. And, and it was back in the days where they could do the field sobriety test, which I failed, but you didn't have to take blood alcohol tests. You could decline, they immediately suspend your license six months, because I'm going to fight this. So the next morning, I get up and uh, went to the Yellow Pages. And for you younger people, it was before Google. <laughs> they, and I looked for drunk driving attorneys in the Yellow Pages. And the one that had the biggest ad, I called and made an appointment for the next day at 9 in the morning, because I'm going to fight this. And that next morning, I woke up, getting ready to go to this appointment. And I'm a little nervous, a little anxiety. So I think I'll just take a pop before I leave maybe two or three, I show up for my first appointment with the drunk driving attorney, drunk. <laughs> he immediately lost his enthusiasm for my case. <laughs> he, he helped me negotiate a no contest to that particular episode. You don't have to have all these things happen, but these were kind of just benchmarks and milestones that showed I had a problem. And at one point, uh, this wife was losing uh, her confidence and faith in me, and I'd be out all night, and she wouldn't know where I was. And, and one particular night, I can remember, I stayed up all night with some running buddies, and when the sun came up and the birds started to sing, that sound was sickening to me. Beautiful sound of birds in the morning with the sun rising, and I'd been up all night, and I'm wasted, and I called my employer, not my wife, and said, I'm in trouble. And they agreed to send me to spin dry. 28 days, uh, lockdown, uh, and I got an A-plus in treatment. Because look at me, right? I'm like, I'm going to say the right things and do the right things, and I'm going to help everybody. And got out of the uh, spin dry, shot out of a cannon, 
and uh, they introduced us to 12-step meetings. But the one that we really liked was a Narcotics Anonymous meeting that was in the basement of a hospital every Friday night, 8 o'clock, about 200 people in this huge basement down there. And I loved going to it because I could stay on the fringe. Nobody could call me out. They're not going to call me. I don't need to get a sponsor. I don't need to do the steps. And the girls at NA are kind of naughty. I mean, they just are. <laughs> so I liked it. I liked it. I also joined a sober bowling team. And so that was my program for about a couple, two years. I stayed sober for two years. Sober bowling and one Narcotics Anonymous meeting. Um, and then when that marriage started to fall apart um, and uh, I started to feel feelings, oh, feelings, feelings, I was powerless, right? I, I, I didn't know what to do with them. So I had to pick back up. I had to pick back up. And, and we did go through with that divorce. So I said, you know, the problem first was the colonel, and then the problem was the Navy, and then the problem was that first wife. I think the problem was she was older. She was 10 years older, so I went for a 10-year younger California blonde, and she was all about it. She bought in on this BS charm that I tried to have, and we got pregnant right away. So now we're getting married right away. And so now, starting over, and um, got a couple of kids. And I had told her early on, I said, I may have kind of a drinking problem. I've been to treatment, I've been arrested a couple times. Uh, I think I've kind of got it under control. And she, she said, well, as long as you don't drink, we're good. And I said, I agree, that would be good. That's, <laughs> that's how this thing should roll. So, um, I then became what we call a sneaky drunk. Anybody a sneaky drunk? And I'm not just talking about the bottles in the garage and that kind of thing. It's kind of like, now I gotta get my drink on. Um, so I would pick a fight so there'd be some door slamming exits, which would give me enough time, either I ran out the door or she did, to really get my drink on. That wasn't good enough, I needed more. And then we started doing long getaway, long fishing trips, rafting trips, trips to Reno, Etc. where we're overnighters, so I'd get my drink on, and that wasn't enough, and I was exhausted. And then I can remember the colonel saying, you know, I'm the man of the family, I'm the head of the family. I can do what I want. I'm, yeah, that tape is still playing. So I can remember uh, on November 13th, 1994, I'm at McGee's Bar and Grill, it's in Citrus Heights, California, bedroom community of, of Sacramento, and, and, and Sunrise Boulevard had these three restaurants. They were known, in bars known as the Herpes Triangle right there. <laughs> so I, I was there at McGee's Bar and Grill, and I like to tell you that I'm a sophisticated uh, drinker. Like, I like Coors, Coors only, beer, snob, and then Jack Daniels, of course, and a good red wine, but the truth is, is once I put in, the doctor's opinion talks about that phenomenon of craving, the, the manifestation of an allergy. I put in and I, I just start drinking anything. So if they had a 20 ounce Schlitz for 75 cents, it's like, give me three, I'll drink anything. And so I'm sitting at that bar that night and it's the uh, Dallas Cowboys and the San Francisco 49ers are on the TV and I'm, and I'm hammered into this night. I can't tell you who won that game that night, but I can tell you that a, a switch got flipped inside me. And that reservoir of anger, resentment, fear, that had been inside me my entire life just overflowed. And I picked up the phone and I called this wife and I told her, you know what, I'm, I'm drinking. I don't care if you don't like that I'm drinking. 
And if you don't like it, I'm on my way home now, and I'll kill you, and I'll kill the kids. And I <clears throat> proceeded to get in my vehicle, drive drunk home once again. And while on that ride home, I called her again and reiterated the fact that when I get there, I'm going to kill you and the kids. And so when I rolled up to Roseville, bedroom community, we had a house. Um, she had grabbed up the kids, three and two at the time, and, and bailed. Good call. Because I rolled into that house with that violent alcoholic rage, and I didn't know where to direct it and where it came from and how to control it, and I destroyed that home. The uh, coffee table went flying, her prized CD collection back in the day, CDs, not this iPod, iP whatever. Destroyed her collection, the kids' toys, I destroyed that home. And in the middle of that wreckage, she, uh, she actually called, and once again, it was insane, and, and I passed out, passed out in the middle of that wreckage. And I heard, ultimately, a knock on the door, and I came to. And I stumbled to the front door and opened it up, and it's like, bam, police officers at the door. And they're saying, is your name Dan O'Grady? And I said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they said, your wife called us. She's worried about you. She has to stop by for a safety check. And I, that's a good idea. <laughs> um, and what we found is that there's an outstanding warrant for you from another county down in the Bay Area, so please turn around and put your hands behind your back. So uh, my last day drinking, I got arrested. I was in the drunk tank of the Roosevelt Police Station. And uh, the drunk tanks aren't pleasant places. Been there? Yeah, everybody? Um, it's a raised concrete block for a bed. There's no mattress. There's nothing like that in there. And it's freezing freaking cold. So the next morning when they went to kick me um, out of jail, I gave the jailer a hard time. You took away my sweatshirt. It was freezing in there, man. And they said, well, when you got here last night, it was assessed that you were going to kill yourself, so we didn't want to have anything in the cell for you to use. That's the thing about this disease. Others see the insanity of it much more clearly than I did myself. Others saw it. I walked out the front door of that police station, and at that point, it was going to be about a six-mile walk from police station out to my home, there was nobody there to greet me. The wife wasn't there to pat me on the back. How dare they do that to you? Nobody. I've got open cuts on my body. I've got uh, blood all over my clothes. And I began to take that walk out to my home. And during that walk, something happened that had never happened before with all the meetings I had gone to, Narcotics Anonymous and Cocaine Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous. <sighs> Two things. The first thing was I can't stop drinking. I'm powerless over alcohol. I never got that. I've been in so many meetings and seen that on the wall so many times. Powerless. Colonel told me I ain't, I'm not powerless over dick. For the first time, I can't stop. I'm powerless over this thing. The second thing I knew 100% without reservation is I have to stop drinking. My life's unmanageable. This is out of control. This is out of control. Moment of clarity, crystal clarity. I rolled up on that house. She had come in the middle of the night while I was in jail, and she packed up all the kids' things, and she headed for the hills, and she had a restraining order on me. And I walked into that home, and I sat down in the midst of that wreckage, and I looked around at what I had done the night before. And this is my children's home, three-year-old girl and two-year-old boy, where they played and prayed and ate and slept, 
It was their safe place. It was their sanctuary. So those four walls kept them from the outside world, the harms of the outside world, and their dad made it a dangerous place for them to be. What kind of a despicable person does that? What kind of a, man, what kind of a father does that? Yeah, I did that. I, um, that was November 14, 1994. I uh, was at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that, that night. I didn't need treatment. I didn't need to call the hotline. I knew all about the 12-steppers. I knew where to go. Roseville Fifth Street Fellowship is an Alano club with meetings in the back, and it's literally five meetings a day. And I rolled in there on that Monday night, and um, people would say, you know, at my first meeting, they told me whatever. I, all I, I was spinning. How am I going to get her back? What buttons do I have to push? What levers do I have to pull? What do I have to do to get this family reconciled? What can I, what can I do this time to promise her it'll be different? And every time I had promised her it would be different, it was me asking permission to do it again. I believe a word I said. I did come back the next night, Tuesday night, at Roosevelt Fifth Street Fellowship. It was a podium meeting. You put a big podium up like this, hour and a half meeting. And they typically would have a lot of the old-timers get up and, you know, pontificate for about five to ten minutes. And, and then towards the end of the meeting, maybe the last ten minutes of the meeting, the go-to move was to... You know that guy who said he had one day over there? Let's get him up, come up to the podium. Get a newcomer up to the podium. It's a 1-800 line to insanity. <laughs> let, let them get up here and tell us how they're feeling after 24, 36 hours, right? So they called on me, and I got up at the podium, and I was a wreck. So Colonel would not have been happy. It was that shaky voice. You ever had that? My name is Dan, and I'm an alcoholic, and I need help, and I need help. So a word of advice, a lot of people here tonight, a lot, of, a lot of years have blown me away, but a lot of folks early in your recovery, if you ask for help at the group level, at an AA meeting, watch out. <laughs> They're on you at the end of the meeting like a hobo on a ham sandwich. <laughs> I swear to God, it was like they are trying to sell me Amway. It was like bang, bang, <laughs> bang, 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 bang. And, and one, guy, one guy stood out crystal clear. He's right in front of me. His name is Chris Baker, and Chris... Looked at me and he says, what are you willing to do? And in that shaky voice, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. And he said, good, do you have alcohol at the house? I said, yes. He says, good, you're going to go home. You're going to get me on the phone. And while you're on the phone, you're going to pour out that alcohol. Then you're going to go to a meeting every single day. You're coming to my house twice a week, and we're going to go through the big book. Do you have a big book? I said, yeah, they gave me one for free treatment. So I never looked at it, but it, I've got it. I can remember thinking to myself, what was the question he asked, and what did I just agree to? <laughs> but I did. I abandoned myself. What did I abandon myself to? The program of Alcoholics Anonymous? Did I abandon myself to a man? Did I give another man permission to wreck my life? I did. I was a loss. I was a devastated. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's the one, you know, and, and Kathy and Dean and I this weekend have been talking about animals and pets and that kind of thing. It's... I can't watch the commercials where the dogs are suffering. Can't do it. But just picture this, if you can, a dog on a freeway. And, and that dog's on the freeway scared to death because in every direction he sees his demise. He's got nowhere to go. Scared to death. A good Samaritan pulls over, gets out of the car, walks up to it, sticks his hand out, and the dog's going to bite the hand because it's scared to death. I was the dog on the freeway. I knew I was going to die, and I was probably going to take people with me and he's reaching out his hand, 
and I didn't know whether to bite it or not. I don't know what you want, but I said yes. I said yes, and I did go to a meeting every day, and I did go to his house, and he did ask me to sit down in his living room, and we opened up that book, and we started to read it page by page out loud. He did most of the reading. He would add commentary every once in a while, allow me to read. It, it, it reminded me of, of my kids. I'd read Winnie the Pooh, nighttime readings, bedtime stories with the kids. We'd read Winnie the Pooh and Goodnight Moon and all that stuff to the kids. I'm sitting in this guy's living room and we're reading this book out loud. And yet it became, it, 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 it was speaking about me. You could have called the book Dan Anonymous. Here's a book written decades before I was born, and they knew I was coming and explained who I am perfectly. Outright mental defective, maladjusted to life, and full flight from reality, yes. Spiritual malady, yes. Selfish and self-centered, yes. It was me all the way. I had no idea. Thank God. Thank God. He took me through the steps. Uh, we got to the third step. He says, all right, uh, there's a prayer. It's called the third step prayer. I want you to memorize it. Can you memorize a prayer? And I said, I'm a Catholic. Are you kidding? Been memorizing prayers my entire life. He said, good. Well, next time when you come over, we're going to do the third step. I said, got it. So next time I go over to his house, he says, have you memorized the prayer? I said, yes. He says, good. Come over here. Get down by my couch. Get on your knees. I said, okay. And then he got down on his knees right alongside me. And he said, put your hands up. So we put our hands up like this. And then he reached over and he grabbed and clasped my hands like this. So we're sitting right here. Our hands are clasped. We're on our knees. And I thought, if he reaches over for a kiss, I'm going to smack him. I have no idea what's going on. God, I offer myself to thee. We, we recite, we said the third step prayer out loud. And I'm ready to pull away from whatever this is going on here. I'm ready to pull away. And he goes, no. And then he began to talk to his God. Blew me away. He was talking to his God as if it was his best friend who knew everything about him, who had a wicked sense of humor. That wasn't the uh, God I had in my mind. Revelatory. Changed everything right there. When we speak to you of God, we mean your own concept of God. He, he used to like to tell me, Dan, just go to the God store and pick one and let's move on. No, man, I need to have definitions and size and scale and scope and the good list and the bad list. I need to know all that. Pick a God and let's move on. It was incredible. So we launched into the, uh, the inventory, and so I'm a computer science guy coming out of Silicon Valley, so I put it on a spreadsheet. <laughs> and, and it's a lot of fun because you can sort things. You can sort everything. The sex inventory, you can sort the sex inventory in a lot of different categories. It was, that was a lot. That was cool. Uh, and, and as we did the fifth step, um, he's like, is that, is that it? Is that it? I said, yeah, dude, this is the makings of a great novel. He says, nah, you're just a drunk. You're just a drunk. You're just a drunk. A uh, little heads up for those who are early in recovery. What happens with that fourth step will come back to visit you in the eighth step. Just telling you. All right. Um, I didn't know that, but it did. So, yeah, I had a lot of resent, too many resentments on the four-step. Um, and as I started to go forward to make the amends, 
that's where I saw another kick in the pants. This program has, has certain milestones where I started to feel the, the spiritual awakening happen with me. The third step prayer was a big part. The fifth step sharing, the exact nature of my wrongs was big. Making those amends was huge. And, and some of them I swore I would never make, et cetera, but I did them anyway And the response. And there's a lot of great direction from my sponsor to make sure that the amends were done right. Uh, the wife number one, 14 years older, down in the Bay Area, I said, I really need to go down and make amends to her. I really do. Um, but she's a really good cook. She's good in bed, and she always has stinky weed. Should I go? No, don't go down there. So we came up with alternatives. So I was, oh, I was always testing this program. Rarely have we seen a person fail. I was, I was trying to be rarely. I wanted to be rarely. I wanted to have a different, a different angle on this thing. The, uh, the 10 years younger wife, wife number two, um, tried to reconcile. She saw I was working a program. She saw I was staying sober. Oh, we finally dropped the restraining order, and we tried to reconcile, uh, but she wasn't having any of it. I would, I would run home from a meeting, and I'd say, look, honey, the doctor's opinion says I have a disease. I'm not a dick. I have a disease. <laughs> and she was having none of it. And, and what I've learned is uh, when you're on the sharp end of the stick of alcoholism, the harms that are done can be fatal. Can be fatal. And the other thing I learned is that when a woman's heart, when that, when that switch gets flipped, when she says, I don't love you, dude, it's hard to turn that light back on, man. I mean, I'm being the most groveling husband but attentive father I can possibly be, trying to keep this family together, and she just, she just couldn't do it. And I would tell my, my sponsor, no you know, we're going to make this work, we're going to stick it out. And he goes, no, let her go with love. Let her go. So we did. We, we separated. Uh, she then, uh, after a period of time, says, you know what, I'm going to move. I'm going to move up to Spokane, Washington. My grandmother's up there. I want to start over. I want to take the kids. I said, you can't leave the state with my kids. Are you kidding? I'm going to get lawyers. You're not, that's not going to happen. I went to my sponsor, and I gave him my plan about a wood chipper. I'll just make her disappear, zzz, get a new wife, just plug and play. We're good to go. And he said, he used to say, just shut up. And then, <laughs> and then he said, no, the mother of your children, you're going to respect her decisions, and you're going to agree with them, and you can fly up and visit them, and they can fly down and visit you. I said, okay. He never led me wrong before. So she did, and she ended up in Spokane, Washington. Meantime, then, I am uh, looking for wife number three. Why not? Um, and it happened to be right there in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, she was celebrating her one year, um, and the girls decided to throw a luncheon for her, and I got invited. So I'm at a one-year luncheon, and I, I, would, I would love to ask her out. So I called her and asked her if she wanted to go to dinner, and she says, uh, I'll call you back. She was going to talk to her sponsor. I went and talked to my sponsor. Both sponsors say it's a bad idea, <laughs> and we did it anyway. But my sponsor said, we're going to try something different. The, uh, the, the extraordinary upside of having done that inventory is we were able to identify patterns of behavior that I repeated over decades, over the years, over and over again, thinking they'd turn out different somehow. And he says, in the uh, relationship category, the patterns of behavior that you were exhibiting were wrong, and we're going to reverse that. So are you ready? I said, yeah, 
sponsor, go ahead. He goes, all right, for you, this time it's going to be friends, fall in love, get married, sex. And I said, what? <laughs> friends, fall in love, get married, have sex. Let's try this because everything you've done up until now hasn't worked. Okay. So now I'm asking um, her out on dates. We're going for dinner and for lunch. Her car's at the Alano Club. I pick her up at the Alano Club, not going to her house. We're going for walks in the park. It's just exhausting. Uh, we're, we're courting. I'm courting. I'm courting. The colonel never courted. Didn't teach his boys how to court. So I'm courting. And here's the secret in case uh, you don't know this. Uh, AA girls talk amongst themselves. Anybody know that? They do. And so pretty soon going around the fellowship uh, amongst the girls is Dan doesn't bust, he won't, he won't kiss her, he doesn't bust a move, he's gay. And I'm trying to, okay. Uh, we continued courting and, and did fall in love and I did ask her to marry me and uh, that's, that's a, a different way of approaching a relationship. That's a different way. We're evenly yoked, common interests. First wife was much older, second wife much younger. This one is exactly my age, so it's the Goldilocks wife. <laughs> just right. Uh, just after we got married, I'm trying to be a long-distance dad to those two kids. The, the greatest gift God ever gave me is to be a father. The best thing I ever did was being a father. It's the best thing I ever did, right? And I turned to my new bride and I said, honey, I got to be with my kids. We're going we're gonna to have to go to Spo freaking can. And uh, we're going to quit our jobs, sell the house, and move up there just so we can be with the kids. And she said, okay. And we did. And we did. And we moved up to Spokane and we ended up for 14 years um, sharing custody of the kids, but there was no custody agreement. They were at our, my house, her house, my ex got remarried. Her husband, my wife, we're all at the school plays, we're at the teacher conferences, we're at the soccer fields, we're watching the baseball games, we're doing everything, we're there for the graduations, right? It's a, it's, it's, it's the game plan, it's the guardrails, it's the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous to do that. Um, kids grow up and then they start to leave the house and uh, our daughter, the oldest one, was gonna go to college over in Portland. And so me and my ex, we're gonna take her over to get her settled at college. My wife is gonna stay at home, her husband's gonna stay at home. It's just me and my ex taking her to college over in Portland. And while she's in student orientation, we go through parent indoctrination and we finish early and I'm outside having a cigarette with her. And I can remember the idea of a living amends to her uh, that I've been operating from for years now. But I just looked her right now and I said, I gotta tell you, if I could pick any woman on the face of the planet to be the mother of my children, I would pick you. You're the fabulous mother, best mother ever, and I'm so grateful for that. That was Alcoholics Anonymous talking right there. I was going to put her through a wood chipper and replace her. <laughs> and Alcoholics Anonymous had me do the exact opposite. A lot of the things I do today are the exact opposite of what this keen alcoholic mind thinks. 
my first thought, typically alcoholic. Problem with this alcoholic centers in my mind. So I have to be able to bounce that off somebody. I need to sound check it. I need to pause before I make a decision. We're in Spokane, it's New Year's Eve, and uh, Dick Clark, remember Dick Clark, ball dropping, the whole thing. So Loretta, my wife, she's out of town visiting her dad, so it's just me and the kids. I think they're 10 and 8 at the time. And the ball drops, and we go, yay, happy New Year, no big deal. I said to my son, I said, remember last summer on the Indian Reservation, we got those cool fireworks, the naughty fireworks, you know what I'm talking about? And he said, yeah, down in the basement, go pick one out. We'll light it off for New Year's. He said, cool. Runs downstairs, comes up with this big thing. Me and him, both pyromaniacs, we love it. So it's this big round thing, and we go out the front door, and we put it on the walkway right there in the front door, and we light it. And it starts to smoke and spark and spit and spin and whistle, and we're going, yay, happy new year. And then all of a sudden, this thing starts to bounce, and it bounces, and it rises, and it's shooting up in the air, and it's drifting, and it's got to be 30 feet high, 50 feet high, and it's drifting across the street and it lands on the roof of our neighbor's house, right on the eaves, right in the front door eaves, right there, so the smoke is billowing into the front door area, of just blocking up with smoke. First thought of this alcoholic is, go in the house, close the door, turn off the lights. <laughs> you would, right? <laughs> First thought, there it is. And yet, I look down at this 8-year-old and a 10-year-old with these big eyes, and they're staring up at me, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And so I said, I'm going to go across the street and check and make sure that everything's okay. And as I walk, go head down the walkway, my son starts to go, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. <laughs> the opposite. I do the opposite of what that first thought is, and it's worked out. So the kids go to college, and they don't come back to Spokane, and the wife and I, she's a California girl, I said, let's go home, and we move back to Roseville, to Roseville, California, just outside Sacramento, and we've been there now since 2013, uh, enmeshed in the fellowship uh, down there. Um, in 2012, the colonel got sick. My mom had passed away in 2009, 2012. He's living in by himself down in L.A. Me and my brothers want nothing to do with the son of a gun. And he's getting sick. And in the middle of the night, he's driving. He's down in Camarillo, California, uh, in the middle of the night, going down the wrong side of the street. And the police pull him over. They thought they had a DUI in their hands. Turns out he's in a medical crisis. Rush him to ICU. We get a call from an ICU nurse. Do you know this guy? And I'm, yeah. We've got him in ICU. He's got congestive heart failure, he's got COPD, he's got diabetes, and, and it looks like it's dementia. Can somebody come down? So me and my older brother raced to the hospital down there, and it turns out um, he can't manage his own affairs any longer. He can't do it. And so um, we have to step up. My older brother, my younger brother, um, decided that they wanted to resign from helping the colonel. Uh, they didn't want to be, have anything to do with it, so they submitted a formal resignation, which left me as the colonel's uh, executor, trustee, power of attorney, and agent for all of his affairs. We had to sell his house. We had to move him into assisted living. Uh, he was the colonel. Uh, assisted living kicked him out because he wasn't compliant. Finally had to, to move him up to Sacramento, so I had him near me. 
problem with uh, the conditions he had is that the uh, medical profession is really good at arresting the congestive heart failure, the diabetes. They can treat that. They can get that to some homeostasis. Dementia races way out in front of everything. And the man's disappearing in front of me, but he's still the colonel for a long time, challenging, difficult. <sighs> it's not good. Um, the caregivers at the board and care that I had him in said, the only time he lights up is when he sees you come to visit. My older brother said, just let me know when he dies and I'll send a card. I would have liked to have sent a card also. But Alcoholics Anonymous says, no, what's the next right thing? Step up, do the next right thing for the colonel. You'll see it on the news some nights. Um, unfortunate, that boarding care has got alarms on the door and it, it every 24 hours, but every once in a while, uh, somebody with Alzheimer's gets out the front door and they're gone. By the time they recognize he's gone, they don't know where he's at. It's 911. You'll see it on the news. 85 year old man on the loose in <laughs> wherever. So I get that call and we don't know where he's at. We've, we've, we've notified 911. And so I'm rushing to get over there. We got to find him when we get a call from the hospital, local hospital, that they've, they found him. He had uh, fallen down on the road, he's bloody, he's bleeding, he's here in the emergency room, and I said, I'll be right there. And, and when I got to the uh, emergency room, he's in a gurney, they got him in a, you know, that, that gown, and he's on the bed, and the thing about dementia, it affects everyone around the patient except the person who has the dementia. He's, uh, what am I doing here? What's wrong? He has no idea, no idea what's going on. I said, it's okay, Dad, we'll get you cleaned up, they're running some tests, and we'll get you back back home. He said, cool, so we're sitting there, and all of a sudden he says, I, I gotta go. I said, what do you mean you gotta go? I, I gotta go to the bathroom. I said, now? He says, yeah. I said, hang on. So I went to try and get a, a nurse, and the emergency room was packed, and there's nobody there. I said, can you hold it? He says, no, I can't hold it. Nurse, no nurse available, so now I'm, so I reach over, there's these urinals that they have in emergency rooms. They're like pictures that are on their side. Have you seen those things, right, where you can do it? I said, here, can you use this? And he can't, he can't. And he said, I gotta go, I gotta go. So I, I have to lip up, lift up his gown and put, and I have to pick up his penis and put it in the urinal. <laughs> if you want what we have, do what we do. <laughs> Crazy. I called my older brother after that um, and told him the story, and he couldn't, couldn't stop laughing for a minute and a half, man. He was just... <laughs> alcohol took me to places I never thought I would go. Alcoholics Anonymous has taken me to places and doing things I never thought I would do. Uh, we lost a colonel in uh, February of 2020, just before COVID uh, hit, before because that just would have been a nightmare to try and navigate. Uh, took him back down to LA to be buried with mom. Uh, full color guard, taps, everything that uh, he deserved, and, um, and I'm glad I've done that. I look back and say, okay, that's exactly what, what needed to be done, exactly what needed to be done. So Alcoholics Anonymous has given me the ability to navigate life that I didn't have before, understand who I am and what I am, and to have a God of my own understanding that is my best friend and that is always helping me. So when we went through the birthday countdown, I saw a lot of months and days out there. So welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I know when I first got 
into the 12-step programs and started looking at those steps on the wall, 12 of them, and everybody's talking about the steps. They seem very important. And then they start talking about traditions, and they're on the wall, and there's 12 traditions. And then somebody started talking about 12 concepts of service, and there's 12 of them, so now there's 36 things up on the wall. <laughs> if you want to stay sober, and if you don't do these things, you're going to die. Oh, my God. So I'm going to give you four things. New people tonight, I'm going to give you four things. And when I say these things, you're going to remember them word for word for the rest of your life. Word for word. You're never going to forget them in an early recovery that helped me. All right? So number one, you ready? Row, row, row your boat. You've got to row your boat in Alcoholics Anonymous. You've got to put some elbow grease, some effort. You've got to move your feet. You've got to take some action in Alcoholics Anonymous. You can't sit in a meeting and be recovered. I had to get up, suit up, and show up and go where my sponsor told me to go and do what my sponsor told me to do and then become part of a fellowship. You've got to row your own boat. Number two, gently down the stream. Go downstream, not upstream. You ever river raft? You ever canoed on a river? Upstream's a pain. For me, that meant quit fighting, quit looking for the loopholes, quit questioning everything that this program was throwing down. Go with it. Quit the debating society. Go gently down the stream. Number three, merrily, merrily, merrily. You, it takes more muscles to frown than it does to smile. We are not a glum lot. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. Enjoying life, right? Uh, it's not a veil of tears. Frequent contact with newcomers and each other is the bright spot of our lives. Uh, you, you'll be able to touch your father's penis without crying. It's <laughs> merrily, merrily, merrily. Number four, life is but a dream. Today, I have a significant other. She's the same age as me. We're evenly yoked. She's my best friend. She's my life partner. She's my soulmate. No, I love her. I respect her. I admire her. She's there for me. I'm there for her. Uh, I hope you find that companionship and that partnership in your life. Uh, I never knew what I was missing, and it was because of Alcoholics Anonymous I was able to find that life partner and that we're going to be able to ride off into the sunset together, uh, launch those children into their lives. Uh, they're on a safe trajectory, but the safety net is always there just in case, right? And I have a fellowship of people in my life. You wouldn't believe the number of texts I've gotten this evening from people in my AA orbit who knew I was up here this weekend. They all promised they'd come up, and then they decided not to, but... They've been texting. It's, it's unbelievable. And tomorrow, uh, on my birthday, they made sure I had a chip up here so that tomorrow morning I'd have one in my pocket tomorrow. Life is but a dream. So those are four things, newcomers. If you stick to those four things, you just might get an extra day to remind you, everybody, ready? Row, 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 row. Thank you very much. Dan O.